From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. At some point during the years 1527 and 1528, King Henry VIII wrote a series of letters to his sweetheart, the woman who would become his second queen, Anne Boleyn. Seventeen of them survive, and in one of the lovely twists of history, they do so in the library at the Vatican. The letters are in two languages, about half are in French and half in English. They're written on paper, in ink, in Henry's own bold and unmistakable hand. His script is rather fatter and squatter than that of his secretaries, though it is in the 16th century style of handwriting known as secretary hand, but it's elegant enough and it's very legible. Some of the letters are fair copies. Some bear his crossings out and corrections. We see his thought processes at work, and we hear the stuff of his heart. Henceforward, my heart shall be dedicated to you alone. I wish my person was so too. God can do it if he pleases, to whom I pray every day for that end, hoping that at length my prayers will be heard. These are love letters, billets doux, and they change the course of history. To mark the release of a history-hit audiobook of Henry VIII's love letters to Anne Boleyn, in which you can hear all the letters in full in translation, in today's Explainer episode, I want to examine these famous letters anew. The first thing to consider is how they have survived. They ended up in the Vatican, where they remain to this day. In the 19th century, they were bound into a handsome red leather book, which was given the title Lettres à Henri VIII à Anne de Boleyn. But how they got to the Vatican is itself a matter of mystery. During the years in which the letters were written, Henry began his appeal to Pope Clement VII in Rome for an annulment to his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, as I discussed on my last Explainer episode. These letters would, of course, have made very good evidence that Henry's motives were not as noble as he suggested. So the logical deduction is that they must, at some point in time, have been stolen from Anne's possession and smuggled to Rome. That we have 17 letters suggests that Anne kept them as a cache together. I long to know where, in a carved box perhaps, or in a fold of leather, or wrapped in cloth. And they were stolen as a group, either from Hever Castle or her London apartments. This probably means that there was at least one person in Anne's household who supported Catherine's cause and was snooping and spying on Anne. Who it was, how they procured the letters and how the letters were whisked to Rome are things I suspect we'll never know. Perhaps the thief was employed by Wolsey or one of his retainers. But the timing of the theft, which seems to have been in the summer or autumn of 1528, 
suggests the involvement of Cardinal Lorenzo Campeggio, who was over in London on behalf of the Pope investigating and trying Henry's marriage to Catherine. Their loss was immediately recognised and worried over. The French ambassador Jean du Bellay wrote a letter in August 1528 mentioning intercepted letters, and he may have meant Henry's. But of course, it is the fact that these letters were stolen or intercepted that has given them their place in history. The letters are undated, and we do not know for sure the order in which they were written, although they were probably not written in the order in which a Vatican librarian added them to the red leather-bound book. They make almost no mention of political events outside their own relationship. The order in which they are now presented is therefore a sequence established by making sense of the content of the letters in terms of the progression of that relationship. And it's contested. Historians disagree about the order. So despite the definitiveness of the ordinal numbers given to them, take the order of the letters as somewhat provisional, tentative. We're not sure. We are, however, pretty sure that the letters were written between the spring of 1527 and the summer of 1528, from an early stage of their relationship to a more assured affection, from a stage at which Henry was trying to nudge the relationship from being one of courtly love, the performance rather than the substance of an affair, into one in which they had pledged to marry each other, and the cause of the king's great matter, as it came to be known, was being vigorously pursued. Although we get them as one group, Many of them were separated by months in the sending. Henry Savage, editing the letters in 1949, thought the first five or six dated from July 1527 and the remainder from between February and October 1528. Others who have edited the letters have come to different conclusions. By definition, letters are only sent when the writer and recipient are apart. We know that for some time in 1528 Anne suffered from the sweating sickness – and went to Hever Castle during her recuperation. But most historians agree that the letters started earlier than that. In these letters to Anne, Henry, as Seth Lyra has observed, uses a unique signature. Henry's normal signature was Henry R, full stop, the R standing for Rex, the Latin for King. Henry used this even, for example, to sign off a letter to Catherine Parr, written with the hand of your loving husband, Henry R. Full stop. But to Anne, Henry signs himself with his initials, H.R. And on some of the R's, if you look at the manuscript, there's an extra twiddle of the pen, which looks like a lowercase x. H.R.X. The R.X. again is short for Rex, however tempting it is in the age of text messages to see it as H.R. Kiss. But while his signature may be different, nearly every letter to Anne ends by pointing out, just as his letter to Catherine Parr does, that it is he himself who has written the epistle. We're often told of Henry VIII that the king loathed writing. These letters are rare examples written in his own hand. And on the usage of that word hand, let me quote Mary Wellesley's gorgeous new book, Hidden Hands, The Lives of Manuscripts and Their Makers, in which she writes... Scholars talk about the script in a manuscript as the hand. A catalogue describing a manuscript might read, written in a 14th century hand, and this terminology suggests that the hand might extend towards us, might reach out to touch us. This is not, as we'll see, the only way in which we'll feel a sense of connection with Henry's physicality in these missives. So Henry wrote them himself, when the accepted wisdom about this king is that it pained him to write. 
Now, I think that's a cliché about him that's become somewhat laboured. It is true that in the last two years of Henry VIII's reign, a system was developed to save him from the tedium of even signing his name on official documents, and that he tended, like most kings, to use secretaries to write his letters. Wolsey was the only man, except for one letter to Cuthbert Tunstall, Bishop of Durham, to whom Henry ever wrote personally. He did so only, as he wrote to Wolsey in July 1518, when the epistles contained, quote, things which be so secret that they cause me at this time to write to you myself, end quote. We also have his personal written interventions in books of theology, notes in the margin that pivot the meaning on a word, or in matters of treason, such as personally altering the list of questions to be put to the alleged traitor Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey, just days before the king's own death. But we have no other sustained correspondence in Henry's own hand, making this collection of letters something quite extraordinary, even before we consider their contents. The first letters are in French, a language that Henry and Anne shared, as indeed Henry and his wife Catherine did. It had been the language of the medieval court. It remained the language of chivalry. Then, as now, the association between French and romance was strong. There was something deliberately formal, learned, seductive, courtly and elevated about writing to Anne in French. I don't think it made the letters any more secret, as some have suggested. Most people of status could read French. But it did convey a certain glamour. It associated Henry's correspondence, above all, with a world of courtly love. Courtly love was the culture around the performance of love at court that was derived originally from the world of the southern French troubadours and tales about Lancelot and his devotion to Arthur's wife, Guinevere. Courtly love was never about love between a married couple, but always about a transgressive love, in which the man, the lover, was filled with painful longing for an unattainable beloved, his mistress. He pledged to be her servant and dedicated his time to her service, to giving her gifts, writing her poetry, singing her songs, all in the face of her implacable auteur, resistance and occasional kindness to him. It was not, in theory, a love that manifested itself in physical intimacy. By Henry VIII's day, it had become a game played at court to entertain bored courtiers, a cultural code that produced entertainments such as tournaments and pageants, and a set of guidelines that trammelled male-female interaction at the court. But enough preamble. To the letters themselves. I cannot do them justice in this little explainer. There's much to say about them. But I want to bring your attention to letters and parts of letters that I find especially meaningful in considering Henry's feelings for Anne, and that will give you a kind of code by which to decipher the rest of the letters when you listen to them in full. The first letter in the recording is one of the most important letters of all, and it's one that's helped historians date the whole sequence. The original is in French. I'm turning over in my mind the contents of your last letter. I've put myself into great agony, not knowing how to interpret them, whether to my disadvantage, as you show in some places, or to my advantage, as I understand them in some others, beseeching you earnestly to let me know expressly your whole mind as to the love between us two. It is absolutely necessary for me to obtain this answer, having been for above a whole year stricken with the dart of love, and not yet sure whether I shall fail of finding a place in your heart and affection, which last point has prevented me for some time past from calling you my mistress. Because if... 
you only love me with an ordinary love. That name is not suitable for you, because it denotes a singular love which is far from common. But if you please to do the office of a true loyal mistress and friend, and to give up yourself body and heart to me, who will be, and have been, your most loyal servant, if your rigour does not forbid me, I promise you that not only the name shall be given you, but also that I will take you for my only mistress, casting off all others besides you out of my thoughts and affections, and serve you only. This is a bold place to start, and I suspect this may not actually be the chronological first letter. But it's crucial, because here Henry admits his uncertainty about Anne's affection for him, lays his cards on the table, and tells her that plus d'un année attente du dart d'amour, that for more than a year he has been struck by the dart of love. Eric Ives tentatively suggested that it may have been at a Shrovetide joust in February 1526, when Henry appeared displaying the device of a man's heart with flames about it, that he first noticed Anne Boleyn. Henry's love affair with Anne seems to have sprung out of courtly love. He played the part of the lover to his mistress beloved in the game of courtly love and then found it had become real. This dating, if correct, would mean that Henry's offer to make Anne his mistress came at around Easter 1527. He asks her to put him out of doubt and offers her a deal. Si vous le plaît de faire l'office de un vrai, loyal, maîtresse et ami. If it pleases you to do the office of a true, loyal mistress and friend, and give yourself body and heart to me. He promises that she will be his only mistress. Now, this might sound like a pretty bum offer. What, your only extramarital affair? I am honoured. But I think we need to consider it in courtly love terms. This is a proposal framed by courtly love norms, and it suggests that Henry is offering to devote himself to her in quite a public and performative way. It doesn't necessarily mean, let's have sex, although I'm sure that was in his mind. So there's a kind of duality of what he's asking of her to be his only proclaimed mistress in the courtly love game, but also kind of to be his actual mistress, as we would understand the word. See how he frames it in courtly love conventions. He calls himself, in the first of many instances, her loyal servant. The curious line, if your rigour does not forbid me, is an indication that Anne has tried to stop her king from claiming to be her servant, but Henry is claiming his role in the courtly love game. She is the mistress whom he serves. But he also breaks with convention in that courtly love was always supposed to be unrequited and unconsummated, and Henry will not allow his beloved that option. Henry wants answers. So he invites Anne to faire l'office, which we might translate perhaps as to play the part of maîtresse et amie, mistress and friend. Lyra has observed that in asking her to play this part, Henry is suggesting that the designate mistress and friend was equivalent to an appointment at the court, perhaps like the French maîtresse en titre, of which both Henry and Anne would have been aware. He's also literally asking her to perform a role, just as he has adopted the role of servant towards her. Because he breaks convention, however, the nature of that role, what it involves, is kind of ambiguous. When he promises to cast all others out of his thoughts and affection, he is making a promise much like that in the marriage vows, 
which he transgresses by writing these words, to forsake all others. Does he mean just all other women, or is he saying that he will put her above everyone, including people like Wolsey? He goes on. I beseech you to give an entire answer to this my rude letter, that I may know on what and how far I may depend. And if it does not please you to answer me in writing, appoint some place where I may have it by word of mouth, and I will go thither with all my heart. Henry dubs this a rude letter. In fact, in French it actually says un rude lettre, which is incidentally not a French phrase at all, but a piece of franglais, and not his only example. He's saying it's an uncouth, coarse letter. But in fact, it is actually a very cleverly constructed letter. No more for fear of tiring you. Written by the hand of him who would willingly remain yours. H.R. The next letter I should like to look at is a short one, just 13 lines, closely packed together on the page, that, unlike that franglais, showcases Henry's literary French. It is written without any corrections, and it's... So very clever a letter that I feel sure it's a fair copy of something he's practised before and then written out carefully to send. He writes, Although, my mistress, it has not pleased you to remember the promise you made me when I was last with you, that is, to hear good news from you and to have an answer to my last letter, yet it seems to me that it belongs to a true servant, seeing that otherwise he can know nothing, to inquire the health of his mistress and to equip myself of this duty of a true servant. I send you this letter, beseeching you to apprise me of your welfare. Now you're hearing the translation in English. In French, Henry was setting up a piece of punning and wordplay. Let me give you a taste of it. Listen for the word savoir, to know, which is very similar in French to the word saveur, to taste. C'est-à-dire de savoir de vous bonnes nouvelles et de savoir réponse de ma dernière lettre, néanmoins il me semble qu'il appartient au vrai serviteur, voyant qu'autrement il ne peut rien savoir, d'envoyer savoir la salute de sa maîtresse. And the link between knowing and tasting is because of what he has sent along with the letter, the body of a buck, a male deer that he has killed in the hunt. And to cause you yet oftener to remember me, I send you by the bearer of this, a buck, killed late last night by my own hand, hoping that when you eat of it, you may think of the hunter. And thus, for want of room, I must end my letter, written by the hand of your servant. In case we're in any doubt that thinking of the hunter is to be thinking of him in physical form, the clue is there in the text. He writes to cause you yet oftener to remember me, as it's given in the translation. In French it says, Et pour vous faire encore plus souvent souvenir de moi. Faire encore souvenir. Encore, the word for yet or again, is in Henry's writing put in a completely unique spelling. En, en, cor, c-o-r-p-s, which we could translate as in body. I don't know if it's a deliberate pun or what we now call a Freudian slip. Then when you eat it, he instructs Anne, you will think of the hunter. Now, to eat the buck and remember Henry. On one level, this is to equate himself with Christ. In the 1520s, it was commonly believed that at the Mass, the bread and wine became Christ's body and blood. 
The believer therefore ate of Jesus' body, as Jesus had said, in remembrance of me. Now Henry's not quite claiming transubstantiation would occur when Anne ate the buck, but the implicit association between him and Christ is there. But the idea of Anne putting the venison in her mouth and thinking of Henry's flesh in its place also provokes the thought of a less spiritual interpretation. To contemporaries, there was a clear parallel between the kill of the hunt, in French la chasse, and the chase of the bedchamber. If Henry is the hunter, the deer is the prey, but in the game of love, the one being hunted was Anne herself. Sir Thomas Wyatt, Anne and Henry's contemporary, wrote a poem which many think to be about Anne Boleyn, although it's actually a translation of a sonnet by Petrarch. Whoso list to hunt, I know where is thine hind, but as for me, alas, I may no more. The vain travail hath wearied me so sore, I am of them that furthest cometh behind. Yet may I by no means my wearied mind draw from the deer, but as she fleeth afore, fainting I follow. I leave off, therefore, Sithens in a net I seek to hold the wind. Who list her hunt, I put him out of doubt, as well as I may spend his time in vain. Engraven with diamonds in letters plain, there is written her fair neck round about, Noli mitangere, for Caesar's I am, and wild for to hold, though I seem tame. Sithens in a net, I seek to hold the wind. One of my favourite lines of Tudor poetry. To try and capture this deer who flees before him is like trying to catch the wind in a net. And it's in vain because graven with diamonds around her neck is this motto, Noli Mitangere, for Caesar's I am. Two allusions to scripture here. Noli Mitangere, do not touch me, is what Jesus said to Mary Magdalene on his appearance to her after he rose from the dead. And for Caesar's I am, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's, Jesus said. The deer belongs to Caesar, to the king. This is a deer who must not be touched whom one chases after, but if you are not Caesar, you can never, you must never capture. In Henry's letter, he writes, A buck killed late last night by my own hand, written by the hand of your servant. The hand of the king has killed the buck, and the same hand writes this letter. As Lyra puts it, we have the vision of a loving hand, fresh from the bloody kill, and rushing to the writing table. This is a violent declaration of love, and for those of us who know how the story ends, it has a particular resonance. Anne also was killed, not literally by, but certainly on the orders of, that same hand. Like the deer, Anne is the prey that ends up dead. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of these great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. 
spread the word. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special mini-series. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. What we think is the next letter suggests that Anne has now accepted the title. It begins, My mistress and friend, my heart and I surrender ourselves into your hands, beseeching you to hold us commended of your favour, and that by absence your affection to us may not be lessened, for it were a great pity to increase our pain, of which absence produces enough and more than I could ever have thought could be felt reminding us of a point in astronomy, which is this. The longer the days are, the more distant is the sun, and nevertheless the hotter. So it is with our love, for by absence we are kept a distance from one another, and yet it retains its fervour, at least on my side. Absence makes the heart grow hotter. Am I the only one for whom this recalls John Donne's later poem, A Valediction Forbidding Morning? Henry's language is very physical. I and my heart put ourselves in your hands. And seeing that he cannot be present with her personally, he sends her the nearest thing to that possible. And seeing that I cannot be personally present with you, I now send you the nearest thing I can to that, namely my picture set in a bracelet with the whole of the device which you already know, wishing myself in their place, if it should please you. This is from the hand of your loyal servant and friend, HR. As with his plea of his pain and suffering at her absence, calling himself servant is again adopting a role taken from the game of courtly love. He picks up this refrain in a later letter too. And if you love me with as much affection as I hope you do, I am sure that the distance of our two persons would be a little irksome to you, though this does not belong so much to the mistress as to the servant. Consider well, my mistress, that absence from you grieves me sorely hoping that it is not your will that it should be so. 
We might imagine, as with the unique signatures in these letters, that these are moments of authenticity, that we're catching him at his most intimate. And in a sense, we are. But we're also catching him at his most performative. And here we have established two of the great themes of the letters, the courtly love dynamic and the missing physicality that the letters are a surrogate for and constantly evoke. The picture set in a bracelet that Henry has mentioned in this letter was probably a miniature of Henry by Lucas Hornboot or Hornbolt, who was the king's painter at the time. Like the bark, this is another high-level present, a bracelet with a miniature portrait. These presents testify to Henry's power, and they're actually part of a torrent of presents, rings, brooches, diamonds set in a headdress, diamonds in a true lover's knot, a gilt and silver binding for a book, page after page, in fact, of gifts that are listed as being given to Mistress Anne by the king from August 1527. But Anne is sending him presents too. For a present so beautiful that nothing could be more so, considering the whole of it, I thank you most cordially, not only on account of the fine diamond and the ship in which the solitary damsel is tossed about, but chiefly for the fine interpretation and the too humble submission which your goodness hath used towards me in this case. For I think it would be very difficult for me to find an occasion to deserve it, if I were not assisted by your great humanity and favour, which I have always sought to seek and will seek to preserve by all the kindness in my power. Henry's letter tells us of Anne's present to him of a ship in which a lone woman is buffeted, presumably with the beautiful diamond he mentions hanging as a pendant from it. Henry thanks her for it, but also for the letter that accompanies it with her interpretation of the meaning of the gift, an interpretation which we have, of course, lost, and her humble submission to him. He claims it's difficult for him to think he merits her submission. I find this hard to believe. Were it not for her great kindness and favour towards him, for which he has sought, seeks and will seek to remain by everything in his power. This is the moment to reflect on the fact that we don't have Anne's responses. Although Henry sometimes chastises Anne for not having written, it was clear that she was also writing letters of love to him and indeed sending him gifts. But we have her voice nowhere in all of this. Her letters to him were not seized. They were not kept. In all likelihood, at some point, they were destroyed. The tide of Henry's affection for Anne can make her seem veritably the courtly love lady here, the one besieged by the man, the woman entirely passive, receptive. But that's not to say that that was Anne's character or her role here. That's a spin we put on the story because of the absences in the archive. As the old argument goes, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. We know so little of her feelings, except what we can deduce from Henry's letters. And what this letter tells us is that Anne wrote beautiful words of love to Henry too. The demonstrations of your affection are such, the beautiful mottos of the letter so cordially expressed, that they oblige me forever to honour, love and serve you sincerely, beseeching you to continue in the same firm and constant purpose, assuring you that, on my part, I will surpass it rather than make it reciprocal, if loyalty of heart and a desire to please you can accomplish this. Henry is now far from the anxious lover of the first letter we heard. Assuring you that henceforward my heart shall be dedicated to you alone. I wish my person was so too. God can do it 
if he pleases, to whom I pray every day for that end, hoping that at length my prayers will be heard. It seems that Anne has met his desire with hers, though clearly not in its full physical form, for he says his heart will be dedicated to her, and desires also that his body might be. He sees nothing adulterous about this, for he says, Comme Dieu le peut faire s'il lui plaît, as God can do if it pleases him, and that he prays for this every day in the hope that his prayer will be answered. This is not only not adulterous in Henry's mind, this is his promise and intention to take Anne as his wife. It's worth thinking about this against the timeline of events proceeding in Rome. Henry's agents were sent to Rome in September 1527. Henry and Anne would have anticipated being married within months, that their matter, as he puts it in one letter, will come to pass very soon. Little did they know that it would take another six years. I wish the time may be short, but I shall think it long till we see one another. Written by the hand of that secretary who, in heart, body and will, is your loyal and most assured servant, H.R. The sign-off here actually is more complicated than the translation lets on. It says, Esprit de la main du secrétaire, written by the hand of the secretary, secretary here relating to its etymology, the bearer of the secret, qui en cœur, corps et volonté est, who in heart, body and will is, votre loyal et plus assuré serviteur, your loyal and most assured servant, H, autre, Abbe ne cherche R. So, with his initials, H meaning H, R for R, and then within his initials, H and R, are her initials, AB, contained in a roughly drawn love heart. And the words either side are Autre ne cherche, that HR seeks no other. It's a formula that Henry liked so much that he repeated it in a later letter to her. In what appears to be one of his final French letters, Henry writes, There came to me suddenly in the night the most afflicting news that could have arrived. The first, to hear of the sickness of my mistress, whom I esteem more than all the world, and whose health I desire as I do my own, so that I would gladly bear half your illness to make you well. The second, from the fear that I have of being still longer harassed by my enemy, absence, much longer, who has hitherto given me all possible uneasiness, and as far as I can judge is determined to spite me more because I pray God to rid me of this troublesome tormentor. The third, because the physician in whom I have most confidence is absent at the very time when he might do me the greatest pleasure. For I should hope by him and his means to obtain one of my chief joys on earth, that is the care of my mistress. Yet for want of him I send you my second and hope that he will make you well. I shall then love him more than ever. I beseech you to be guided by his hand in your illness. In so doing, I hope soon to see you again, which will be to me a greater comfort than all the precious jewels in the world. Written by that secretary who is, and forever will be, your loyal and most assured servant, H. Bracket A. B. Bracket R. Anne Boleyn had come down with the sweating sickness, the sweat, and this is Henry's anxious letter to her on hearing the news. The letters which seem to have started in French now shift mostly to English. What does the change of language signify? 
Lyra has described the shift as one from deftly erotic French to bluntly corporeal English. The French is certainly more artful and more labour had gone into the letters crafting than with the English ones. The English letters suggest, perhaps, a relaxation and an increased intimacy. They are certainly more earthy. But while they may be more corporeal and more blunt, they remain erotic, albeit clumsily so. The eroticism pivots again around hunting. In fact, three times in these letters does Henry mention killing a deer. Goodness knows how many he killed over his lifetime. We've had one mention. Here's another. And seeing my darling is absent, I can do no less than to send her some flesh representing my name, which is heart flesh for Henry, prognosticating that hereafter, God willing, you may enjoy some of mine, which, he pleased, I would were now. He speaks of the heart, the deer's flesh representing his name. It's wordplay again on the heart, H-A-R-T, and Henry's heart, H-E-A-R-T, and on Henry's name itself. But here the idea of Anne enjoying this flesh is now not only in remembrance of Henry, but in anticipation of what she will afterwards enjoy. The pleasure of the heart's flesh is a proxy for the pleasure she will derive from Henry's flesh. This is a man certainly thinking he's going to get married and enjoy the fruits of that marriage very soon. And if that mention of sexual intimacy is too cryptic, this one is not. He starts his letter with pure romance. Mine own sweetheart, this shall be to advertise you of the great elangeness that I find here since your departing. For I ensure you me think of the time longer since your departing now last than I was wont to do a whole fortnight. I think your kindness and my fervency of love causeth it, for otherwise I would not have thought it possible that for so little a while it should have grieved me. He addresses Anne as his own sweetheart and says, this shall be to advertise you of the great Ellingness I find here since your departing. Ellingness means loneliness. He's writing to tell her of his loneliness since she has gone. And we also get his estimation of her, her kindness and the fervency of her love. He picks up the thread. But now that I am coming towards you, methinketh my pains be half removed, and also I am right well comforted, in so much that my book maketh substantially for the matter. In looking whereof, I have spent above four hours this day, which causeth me now to write the shorter letter to you at this time, because of some pain in my head. The book on which Henry had spent four hours was his Glass of Truth, a treatise collating theological arguments to prove that Henry's marriage to Catherine was null and void. And he signs off, Wishing myself, especially an evening, in my sweetheart's arms, whose pretty duckies I trust shortly to kiss. Written by the hand of him that was, is, and shall be yours by his own will. H.R. Duckies was a common Tudor slang for breasts. This may have been a couple who did not consummate their marriage, but we shouldn't imagine that they were monastically chaste either. Lyra has pointed out that Henry seeks comfort from the arms and breasts of his new woman because he is beset by physical and emotional pain and preparing a book to help him dispense with his old one. The unfortunate consequence is that Anne is reduced, anatomized, perhaps even fetishized, to being but arms and breasts. One of the last of the letters is this one. The reasonable request of your last letter, with the pleasure also that I take to know them true, causeth me to send you these news. The legate, which we most desire, arrived at Paris on Sunday or Monday last past, so that I trust, by the next Monday, to hear of his arrival at Calais. 
and then I trust within a while after to enjoy that which I have so longed for, to God's pleasure and our both comforts. The legate was Cardinal Lorenzo Campeggio, finally on his way to Calais and thereafter London. And here we see Henry hoping, trusting even, that the arrival of the legate will be what is required to break his marriage to Catherine and allow his marriage to Anne that he has so longed for. No more to you at present, mine own darling, for lack of time, but that I would you were in mine arms, or I in yours, for I think it long since I kissed you. Written after the killing of a heart at eleven of the clock, minding, with God's grace, tomorrow, mightily timely, to kill another, by the hand which, I trust shortly, shall be yours, Henry R. The killing of a heart again. And, of course, the arrival of Campeggio meant disaster and not triumph. And it seems very likely that it is because of Campeggio's arrival that we have these letters at all. One final thought for you. In the V&A Museum, there's a portable writing desk made in 1525-26 to for Henry VIII. It's of gilded leather, painted with portrait miniatures, figures of Mars and Venus, the coats of arms and personal badges and initials of Henry and his queen Catherine of Aragon. It is at this portable desk with its cherubs and roses, pomegranates and sheaths, inner drawers and tiny compartments, that Henry surely sat and wrote these extraordinary missives. On them, the lover's knot he transgressively wrote was not H and K, but HR and AB. These are the love letters that changed history. To listen to all the letters in full, please do download History Hit's audiobook of the love letters of Henry VIII to Anne Boleyn. Thank you so very much for your support for Not Just the Tudors. Please do subscribe or leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. I'd be delighted to read them. And I'm excited to share with you that if you want more fascinating Tudor content, then you can now subscribe to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Just follow the link in the notes for this show. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.